So on Thursday nights, I'm leading this little book study that zeroes in on how each of the four Gospels begins the story of Jesus. Luke's Gospel is the one that we're most familiar with, about Joseph uh, going to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. You can almost recite it with me. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke then goes on to tell us about shepherds watching their flocks by night and an angel choir that could rival the Mormon tabernacle. It's all quite warm and lovely. John's gospel is the next best known because of its lofty poetic theology. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. And so on. Mark's gospel, it's hilarious. Mark's gospel is fast and furious. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, son of God. Full stop. That's it. <laughs> then he goes on to talk about John the Baptist. Jesus isn't even mentioned until verse 9. Mark is here for the facts and just the facts. No time for frilly theology, nostalgia, or detail. And then there's Matthew. The part of Matthew's nativity story we are most familiar with actually isn't even a Christmas story at all. It's an epiphany story. It's the one about the magi visiting and bringing with them gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But that actually doesn't even happen until the Holy Family is settled in Bethlehem. They're no longer doing an Airbnb in a barn. And Jesus is likely a toddler. The actual birth narrative doesn't get a whole lot of attention in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, Jesus' birth isn't even mentioned, really. It's sort of assumed during the semicolon that takes place in verse 25. Go check. There's no mention of a manger or being swaddled in bands of cloth. The birth just isn't the highlight. Probably explains why Matthew's version of the story is virtually never used on Christmas Eve. It leaves a bit to be desired. So instead of a Christmas story, I'm going to suggest that perhaps we do well to consider Matthew's take on the gospel's origin story as the adoption of Jesus by Joseph. It's an adoption story, which doesn't that make it feel closer and like good news for some among us here? And if this is Jesus' adoption story, then it definitely puts the genealogy with, which precedes it into context. Jesus' adoption by Joseph puts him in line with King David and Abraham. Now, you'll recall the genealogy, I'm sure, the one that Will read so eloquently on the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah? No? You don't? Well, Will, you could come and read it again. Okay, fine. I'm just, well, we could do it as a unison reading. I've got a slide for it. There we go. Can you see that? We can do it together. Are you ready? One, two, three. Okay, settle down. I told you two weeks ago that this genealogy would come back up and that there would be a test. I told you. Don't say I didn't warn you. Gave you the old heads up. 
Through the recitation of this genealogy, Matthew makes the point that this Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as King David. How? Because Joseph is a descendant of this family, and so therefore any child of his household would share in this ancestry. By adopting Jesus, naming and claiming him, Joseph knits him into this family tree. But you'll recall, I know you will, that there's a few loose threads, aren't there? Remarkably, Matthew goes out of step by mentioning four women, along with all the fathers who begat sons, who begat sons, who begat sons. And not just any women, and certainly not the matriarchs, but rather four women who were considered ethnic outsiders to the people of Israel. Four women with some aspect, frankly, of sexual trauma, and four women with justice on the agenda. Their stories are scandalous and messy, yet ultimately demonstrate what grace and justice look like in the flesh. Matthew is unapologetic in his inclusion of these women and their stories. So I want to highlight just one of them. I want to highlight Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. You're glazing over. I can see it. Where's my genealogy? There we go, right? You remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? I circled Joseph, because that's who we were talking about at the time with his amazing Technicolor dream coat. His big brother, oh, look at there's a little thingy. Cool, right? His older brother is Judah. Do you see where we are now with the 12 tribes of Israel? Good, great, there's a test. Fantastic. Right. Jacob had a daughter and 12 sons, one of whom was Judah. Judah married and had three sons himself. His eldest son, Ur, he married to a woman called Tamar. Unfortunately, Ur died before they could bear any children. So according to Levitical law, Tamar was handed to the next son. It's really awesome to be a woman. It doesn't get better. Uh, So Ur died. uh, They handed her off to Onan, the next brother, to sire a child in Ur's name. But Onan was a bit of a rapscallion. And so in your spare time, I invite you to Google the term coitus interruptus. Which, while only 78% accurate and effective, Uh, was not enough to bring about a child. Onan's disloyalty to Tamar and his family so infuriated God that he was struck dead. Tamar was widowed again, was told to wait for Judah's third son, who was still a kid, who needed to grow up enough to wed her. So Tamar returned home, distressed, twice widowed, and frankly scorned. Eventually, she took matters into her own hands. Watch out for women who do that. She took off her mourning attire, like the sadness stuff. She took off her mourning attire and donned the silks and scarves of a, there are people under 18 in here, I'm sorry. The silks and scarves of a sex worker. She stood outside the city gate and waited for her father-in-law to pass by. Guess I should have put a content warning on the sermon today, eh? <clears throat> Sorry, you're going to have a fun drive home in the car. 
but I'm not saying anything that's not in the Bible. In fact, I am sanitizing it. You're welcome. So Judah enjoys this mysterious young woman and heads off on his way. In lieu of payment, he left her with his staff, cord, and signet. A few months later, word gets out that Tamar, the widow, is with child. Judah, a law-abiding man, demands his daughter-in-law be dragged out into the city center and burned for her promiscuity. But before it can happen, she announces that she is pregnant by the man who owns, you guessed it, this staff, cord, and signet. Yikes. I think I have a Tamar slide as well. Put it up there. There she is. So, by Tamar's own cunning, she ends up bearing twin boys. Poetic, given the two sons that Judah had already lost. Risky and scandalous. And very much part of the genealogy that Jesus inherits. Here's why all of that is important. Deuteronomy 22 outlines very specific and severe consequences for a woman who breaks a contractually binding partnership. That is, she's engaged, married, or even widowed if you're waiting for your dead husband's kid brother to reach the age of majority. It was a matter of life and death for her to keep her commitment to the contract. Judah knew these rules, or earlier versions of them, and so he was correct in condemning Tamar to death. It was the lawful thing to do since she was still contractually bound to Judah's youngest son. The trip up was that it was he, Judah, who got her pregnant. And so it behooved him to take her under his care once again to provide for her and their sons. He was forced to do the more compassionate thing, the better thing. With that in mind, because Matthew planted that seed in the genealogy for us to read, Look at the situation for Joseph now with his betrothed Mary. Joseph discovers that the young woman to whom he is promised is with child, and the child is not his. Matthew presents Joseph as the latest in a string of family scandals involving women and questionable or unorthodox conduct. And like his forefather Judah, Joseph is a righteous man. The lawful thing to do is to have her dragged before the city council and request the death penalty. Her father's household would be shamed for her wantonness. Joseph is a righteous man. He knows what the law commands. And yet, he is struggling about what to do. And here's what's fascinating to me, and I've spent quite a bit of time this week kind of resting on this verse. Of his own volition, Joseph decides to break the law, or at least bend it considerably. It's strange how we have interpreted this passage, her husband Joseph being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Our brain does something funny with the word and here. A more accurate reading of the essence of the significance of this moment would be her husband Joseph being a righteous man 
yet unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. Plan to dismiss her quietly. Do you see the difference? Can you hear it? Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, yet unwilling to expose her to public disgrace. Rather than having Mary dragged out into the middle of the town to be burned or stoned to death, Matthew defies the letter of the law and chose instead to break their marriage contract quietly. Perhaps her family would send her away or hide her deep on their property, but she wouldn't be Joseph's problem anymore. He was perfectly within his rights to have Mary killed, but Joseph chose a better way. Yes, Joseph was a righteous, law-abiding man, but it turns out that more than that, he's a man of grace. Of his own doing, he chose a more generous and kind way. So then, check this out, it is after Joseph decides to bend the law that the angel appeared to him in a dream. Side note, biblical scholars, can you think of another Joseph who was a dreamer? Fascinating, huh? He had a coat of many colors. He was Judah's baby brother. So it's all connected, folks. Matthew knew this while he was writing his gospel and would hope we would pick up on it because we're clever like that. Anyway, after Joseph makes up his mind to do the better thing, to dismiss her quietly, an angel bursts into Joe's dream like the Kool-Aid man. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Nobody can read it better than you, Rich. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Suddenly, Joseph is presented with a situation where not only does he feel the pull to bend the law, but he's invited to defy it entirely. Now, Joseph is invited to choose chesed, to choose loving kindness, by taking Mary as intended to be his wife, and more than that, to name and claim the baby in her womb. Though it was customary for women to name their babies, the angel instructs Joseph to have that honor and privilege for the Messiah of God growing in his fiance's womb. By naming the infant, he solidifies Jesus as a son of Joseph, adopted fully into Joseph's family and the genealogy he represents. This isn't a birth narrative so much as it's an adoption story. And Mary, though utterly voiceless and passive in Matthew's account, which grinds my gears a bit, is given a place of honor among the incredible women in Jesus' family tree. Do you have the, can you go back to the slide? Tamar, and then go counterclockwise. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, and Mary. Women who by their own agency and the choices of those around them to choose loving kindness over unrelenting lawlessness, or lawfulness rather, touch the grace of God manifested in justice. So speaking of justice, Next week, we're going to be with Mary in the Gospel of Luke. I am giddy. Uh, at that point, she's going to be arriving at her cousin Elizabeth's home. The Holy Spirit fills the women, and Mary bursts out into a song so radical in nature that some countries, facts, some countries have banned its recitation in public worship.
you don't want to miss next week. I haven't written it yet, but you don't want to miss it. Um, <laughs> I don't want to give away too much of next Sunday's sermon, but because so many people on the margins have identified with Mary's powerful poem and have been inspired to believe that God can actually bring liberation to their plight, numerous governments considered the song's message to be too dangerously subversive. Luke doesn't present a gentle Mary, meek and mild, but a bit of a teen radical, a religious zealot who saw the Messiah as the one coming to tear down corrupt and oppressive empires, to bring the rich low and lift up the lowly. It's no accident then that a few chapters later at Jesus' first public appearance in ministry, he reads words from the scroll of Isaiah that pick up on the same theme. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was Mary's boy. He got some of his firebrand radical preaching and teaching from his mama, to be sure. But Matthew insists that Jesus was very much Joseph's boy, too. Because this same bending and pushing of the law that the righteous man Joseph did in order to take Mary as his wife and the baby in her womb as his own, the same chesed, the same loving kindness that inspired him to choose the better way and then to accept the invitation from God to choose God's way, that same spirit inspired Jesus when on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in Matthew 5, he proclaims, You have heard it said, before quoting, the, before quoting the law, and then saying, But I say to you. And then gives life to a better way, to God's way. You have heard it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's the law. But I say to you, Do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And you have heard it said, because it's the law, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus was Joseph's boy as much as he was Mary's boy. He was influenced by his adoptive father's proclivity to choose grace over law, to choose the better way. In his ministry, Jesus shows us over and over again what it looks like to choose this better way, to choose a gracious posture in the world, one that is open and curious and welcoming and leads with love and life instead of condemnation and judgment. We can do that too, you know. We can choose the better way. We can choose to stay open and curious rather than rushing to judgment. When someone makes us uncomfortable, we can sit with that discomfort and ask ourselves what this feeling is saying about us rather than about the other person. What if we just paused in our day and chose to be gracious, to give the benefit of the doubt instead of rushing to what we think is fair or right or appropriate? Perhaps if we make that one small concession, like Joseph did, we too might find ourselves faced with a holy invitation to step all the way into God's plan and God's truth. One of my favorite quotes 
is by researcher and author Brene Brown. And she says this, all I know is that my life is better. And I would add, I feel closer to the kingdom of God when? When I assume other people are doing their best. Keeps me out of judgment. And it lets me focus on what is and not what could or should be. All I know is that my life is better when I assume people are doing their best. It keeps me out of judgment and lets me focus on what is and not what could or should be. Are all people always doing their best? No, I know I'm not. And I'm sure you aren't either. But man, even when I'm messing up, you know? You know what does my heart good? A little bit of grace. A breath of kindness, understanding, curiosity, empathy. Church, we can do that, you know. We can choose to be radically gracious. We can teach our children by our actions to have an open, gracious, loving posture in this life. You can start by doing it on the highway on the way home. They're watching. Is it risky? You bet. You bet, love is risky. It was risky for Joseph and his little family. In fact, more than Luke's version of the Christmas story, Joseph's story in Matthew's gospel highlights how dangerous all of this was for them. It was dangerous for their reputation, for their livelihood, and even for their life later when King Herod sought to kill all the babies born in Bethlehem. That one doesn't get used on Christmas Eve either, just for the record. Joseph takes them to Egypt, is there another Joseph that goes to Egypt? It's on purpose, people. Joseph takes him to Egypt, choosing to be refugees and hiding until it was safe to return to Judea. Joseph shows us how costly love and grace can be. He draws out the danger of the whole situation for all of them. He could have washed his hands of it. It's all more trouble than it's worth. You have heard it said, because it's the law. A woman found pregnant outside of a covenant of marriage should be put to death. But I, Joseph, adopted father of Jesus the Messiah, say to you, you could dismiss her quietly, preserve her dignity and safety, but if you can, do one better. Accept the holy invitation to receive her and the child as your own. Take the risk of love into your own body. Let it define your life. You can choose a better way. Joseph was all in. Like so many men who have stepped up. Yes, I could say parents in general. I know, but come on. There are times when there are men who really step up who go all in. And they aren't always the biological father in a situation. They could be an uncle, a friend, a cousin, a colleague. The point of the biblical birth narratives is that the holy family is anything but a pretty hallmark card. This is not your typical suburban family. It's messy, like Matthew's genealogy, like many of our families. And yet what binds us is so much stronger than laws and mores and societal expectation. It's love. 
It's love. Who in your life could use the gift, and it's such a precious gift, of an open and curious mind and grace colored with empathy? Who have you been too quick to judge because you have the moral high ground? Where have you chosen cold lawfulness, righteousness, over warmth and understanding? Have you allowed yourself to take on the risk of really loving, even if it means danger to your reputation or your circumstances? Where in your world right now can you choose solidarity over silence? He could have dismissed her quietly. He chose to marry her and adopt the child instead. That decision changed everything. Jesus was Mary's boy, yes, but he was also Joseph's boy, who knew what was righteous according to the law, but more importantly, he knew what was righteous according to God's love. The boy he named Yeshua, God saves. Emmanuel, God with us. God is love. This love is with us and gives us the fortitude we need to choose the better way in our lives, in tiny everyday moments, and in giant life-changing ones too. I'll close as I have with both of my other Advent sermons with the poem included in our program. Sarah Speed writes, Instructions for a Hard Choice. First, you must take a deep breath. Let oxygen dance through your lungs and exhale it slowly. Allow the hurt, the shame, the anger to rise up in you. Let your mind run wild like a million loose horses. Let the narratives unfold, unroll a river of choppy water. Ask yourself how you got here. Look down at your feet. Roll your shoulders back. Remember who you are. Take another deep breath and walk it back to the beginning. And instead of looking at your feet, look at hers. Imagine where she stands. Imagine what he needs. Dry the river of false stories in your mind. Turn rushing water into a dry creek bed, certainly not clean enough to drink. Call the horses. Bring them home. Watch as they shake off the dust of the day. Name what you're feeling. Inhale again. Now you are ready to choose a better way. To God be all the glory. Amen.